Blog Talk Radio. Here are some thoughts on this Memorial Day for the Eastern family. This Memorial Day, we remember those heroes who courageously gave their lives. The service members we honor came from all walks of life, but they shared several fundamental qualities. They possessed courage, pride, determination, selflessness, dedication to duty, and integrity. All the qualities needed to serve a cause larger than oneself. Many of them didn't ask to leave their homes to fight on distant battlefields. Many didn't even volunteer. They didn't go to war because they loved fighting. They were called to be part of something bigger than themselves. They were ordinary people who responded in extraordinary ways in extreme times. They rose to the nation's call because they wanted to protect a nation which has given them, us, so very much. Millions of Americans have fought and died on battlefields here and abroad to defend our freedoms and way of life. Today our troops continue to make the ultimate sacrifices, and even as we lose troops, more Americans step forward to say, I'm ready to serve. They follow in the footsteps of generations of fine Americans. The idea for Memorial Day, originally called Decoration Day, arose from the ashes of the Civil War. Following the Civil War, at least 620,000 Americans, both Union and Confederate, had been killed and hundreds of thousands more were maimed. Through the course of the war, Americans had blasted at each other's lines and with cannons and burned cities and towns on our own soil. Americans had locked each other in prisoner of war camps and torn up the railroads connecting north to south. Although there are different versions of how Memorial Day began, one story goes that the grieving families both northern and southern, began decorating the graves of their lost soldiers with flowers and wreaths. In one city in Mississippi, people decorated the graves of both Union and Confederate troops out of respect for the families of the Union soldiers 
and with the hope that someone would do the same for their lost loved ones in the North. These informal honors led to the first Memorial Day observance in Waterloo, New York on May 5, 1866. Congress officially recognized Memorial Day as a federal holiday in 1887. Since then, with each passing year and subsequent uh, conflicts, we've continued to honor our troops. We have awarded medals to many soldiers, added their names to monuments, and named buildings for them to honor them for their bravery. But nothing can ever replace the hole left behind by a fallen service member, and no number of medals and ribbons can comfort the ones left behind. We see every day the beautiful symbol of America, a piece of cloth with 50 stars and 13 stripes that we call O Glory. It represents many things to us, but the most respectful display is when it is put upon the casket of a fallen hero and then folded and placed in the arms of a family member. This remarkable piece of cloth keeps freedom alive for the past, present, and the future. Hello, folks. It's memory time, Eastern Airlines memory time. Every week at this time, we bring you memories of this great airline from the people who made it the great airline it was, still is, in the minds of its former employees. That's why we enjoy telling these stories every Monday night at 8 p.m. East Coast time. Harry Lindquist, a former Eastern pilot crew scheduler, and myself, Captain Neil Holland, enjoy telling these stories, stories from pilots in the open cockpit mail wing planes into the prop era, and finally into the jet age, hostesses in the first passenger-carrying aircraft, to stewardesses in the great silver fleet of the DC-3s, Martin 404s, DC-4s, 6s, and 7s, and Lockheed Constellations, finally as flight attendants in the prop jet Lockheed Electras, the Boeing 720s, 727, 757s, and 747s, to the Lockheed L-1011s, Douglas DC-8s, DC-10s, and the Airbus A300s. In many of these aircraft, Eastern was a launch customer. There were so many firsts for Eastern, it would be hard to tell in the length of these broadcasts. Our maintenance was second to none in the industry. Ditto for the advertising, marketing, and sales, and reservation system, Eastern excelled. Yes, you can say that Eastern was truly a pioneer of many advancements in the airline industry. The story hasn't been completed, as many of us known as the Eastern family haven't completed that story. We would like to hear from you, your story, and memories of Eastern it's very easy to share them with our listeners on these broadcasts by simply writing them and sending sending the stories to us at eneilholland at yahoo.com. 
That's E-N-E-A-L-H-O-L-L-A-N-D at yahoo.com. We'll record your story and read on the air. Better yet, why not record your story in your own voice and we'll play it on a future broadcast. The recording must be done in the MP3 or WAV format. Send the, the copy of the recording Send to the above address, and we'll have you on the air telling your memories of the greatest airline ever. Now let's hear what we have recorded for you this week. This comes to us from the book, The Wings of Many. It's written by Janice Henry, who was a flight attendant for Eastern Airlines. The article is titled, San Juan to Chicago Trips. And anybody that worked for Eastern during the 70s, 80s, 90s probably remember the infamous San Juan trips, especially out of Chicago. We all heard reports of what the passengers carried on the plane. Here's what Janice has to say in her first story. Chicken on board. If you flew the San Juan to Chicago, 11 p.m. flight, you'll remember unusual occurrences. The passenger's luggage was usually two large matching shopping bags carrying everything but the kitchen sink. We called it San Juan Samsonite. One evening, I walked down the aisle around 1 a.m. because I kept hearing strange noises. I got about halfway through the cabin and found the source of the sound. A passenger had a live chicken in a brown paper shopping bag. It was a gift for the passenger's relatives in Chicago. We landed safely in Chicago, and so did the chicken. Obviously, I flew before TSA security checks. Her next article is entitled, Laundry Day. On another trip from San Juan to Chicago, a female passenger was in the laboratory for a long time. I finally knocked on the door, asking if she was okay. She responded in broken English that she was fine. While handing out mails, I got to her seat. She had the road to herself, which was a good thing. She had wet lingerie draped in the seat back pockets with the air vents directed to the dry cycle. Must be love. Then one month, I flew with a flight attendant who was madly in love with the first officer. I could not believe my eyes when she served his dinner to him. She had spelled out, I love you, with peas in his mashed potatoes. Hmm, I wonder if that first officer might be listening tonight. And then her last story concerns the Harlem Globetrotters. I worked a charter flight with the Harlem Globetrotters, a very lively group. Basketballs were being tossed all over the cabin, and they helped carry the mail trays. This winter, you need all the summer you can get. With Eastern Airlines' new personalized vacation planning, you can have a vacation as unique as you are. Talk to your travel agent or call the airline that's working harder for your dollar. Get the most summer this winter from Eastern, the wings of man. From the book, Eastern Airlines, by David Lee Russell, let's take a look back at the post-war, post-war era, Winds of Change. In 1944, Rickenbacker announced that Eastern Airlines planned to expand 10 to 15 times. Eastern was not alone, for all the U.S. carriers expected a dramatic surge in air travel. 
Every carrier went out to expand their fleet and purchase new aircraft with every expectation of supporting new demand. Unfortunately, by 1947, the reality set in and more carriers were deep in the red. It was a different story for Eastern. Eastern was doing well and preparing for its post-war growth. Rickenbacker obtained approval from the Eastern Board of Directors to expand the airline. In July 1945, Eastern had a fleet of 45 DC-3s either in service or being converted back to passenger configuration. A year after VJ Day, Eastern had expanded to 6,000 employees with a route system of 9,000 miles. The fleet included 49 DC-3s and 19 DC-4s. Rickenbacker knew that the war had increased the pace of aviation technology and the DC-3s were becoming obsolete. Rickenbacker's five-year, $25 million fleet expansion program included acquiring 14 new four-engine Lockheed Constellations, 10 CW-20s, and 13 four-engine Douglas DC-4s. Eastern was going big into a prosperous future. When the war ended, the only immediately available four-engine aircraft was the Douglas DC-4 that had been flown by the Navy. Eastern's chief engineer, Charles Froesch, recommended to Rickenbacker that Eastern purchase the DC-4 outright for $130,000 each, but Rickenbacker said they were too expensive. He wanted to buy the Curtis C-46 Commando as a replacement for the DC-3 because Curtis's president and former race car driver, Gary Vaughn, Guy Vaughn, was his friend. Froesch was one person who Rickenbacker would sometimes listen to. When Froesch said the C-46 was not right for Eastern, Rickenbacker asked, I'd like to know why, Charlie. Eddie, it was never really designed for airline operations. I've seen their shop facilities in Buffalo. They're not too hot. Second, the airplane's too slow. Third, their engineers don't have the transport aircraft design experience we get at Lockheed and Douglas. And let's face it, every post-war transport airplane will have a tricycle landing gear except the CW-20. It'll be a come down. Well, Curtis assures me it'll do a great job for us, Rickenbacker replied. I'll have to think it over. Rickenbacker decided to buy the CW-20, but Frost delayed moving on the CW-20 purchases until delivery problems surfaced when Curtis moved its manufacturing facility to Columbus, Ohio from St. Louis. This forced Rickenbacker's hand to buy the DC-4s and now at the higher price of $170,000 each. Though the purchase price was $2 million each, Eastern's figure was pinned to the Lockheed Constellation, the L049 Constellation Connie, as it came to be known, was designed by Lockheed engineers Kelly Johnson and Hal Hibbard to the 1939 specifications of TWA and its major stockholder, Howard Hughes. The specifications called for a 40-passenger transcontinental airliner with a range of 3,500 miles. The wings were like those on the P-38 Lightning, and the unique triple tail allowed it to fit in existing hangars. It was powered by four 18-cylinder radial right R3350 engines driving propellers. The top speed was 340 miles per hour and was able to cruise at 300 miles per hour to a 24,000 feet service feeling. It had new features including hydraulic assisted controls, thermal de-icing on the wing and tail leading edges, and a stylish tapered fuselage 
with a pressurized cabin. As World War II began, the TWA aircraft entered production at Burbank, California, were converted to fill an order for the Army Air Force for 202 C-69 Constellation military transport planes. The first C-69 flew on January the 9th, 1943, on a test flight from Burbank to Muroc Field. Mm -hmm. On April 17, 1944, the second production C-69 was flown from Burbank, California to Washington in 6 hours and 57 minutes, piloted by Howard Hughes and TWA President Jack Fry. Two other military versions were pro proposed by Lockheed, a long-range bomber designated XB-30 and the Pan Am-ordered C-69B, a long-range transport, but they were never built. 143-seat VIP transport, designated C-69C, was built in 1945. A total of 22 C-69s were completed before the war ended, and the Army Air Force canceled the remaining of the order. TWA received the first civilian Connie on October 1, 1945. Eastern had ordered the L-649 Connie with larger engines and slightly larger wings and received its initial Superior Constellation on May 17, 1947. That day, Chief Pilot Dick Merrill and Captain M. Johnson flew the Eastern aircraft from Burbank to Miami in a speed record time of 6 hours and 54 minutes. When Eastern began regular commercial service in June of 47 using the Connie L649 on the New York to Miami and Chicago to Miami runs, passengers abandoned flying nationals and deltas pressurized, unpressurized DC-4s and flocked to Eastern. This forced Delta's woman to buy the new pressurized Douglas DC-6 as a compatible replacement. The only disadvantage of the Connie was the requirement to expand the crew to two pilots and a flight engineer while the DC-6B required just two pilots. Eastern still had an 18-month lead over Delta with the L-649s. The competition continued between Eastern and Delta. When Delta's DC-6B came in service, Rickenbacker upped the ante and acquired the stretch version with 88 seats called the Super Constellation, the L-1049A. Delta then countered with a faster plane with similar size, the DC-7. Eastern continued to stay ahead of Delta in the late 40s and early 50s when it came to aircraft capability. When the Constellations entered Eastern's fleet, the pilots loved the stable ride, the easy landings, and extra power. What they didn't like was the cockpit visibility. The windshield was collision-proof, but was so thick that it distorted vision. From one panel, an approaching aircraft looked like it was coming right at you, while from another, an adjoining panel, the view showed the same airplane to be 200 feet higher. Another windshield problem came from the defrosting system, which distorted the glass from the hot wires embedded in it. The Connie had its shared bugs at the beginning, including the faulty electrical system, which happened to cause two fatal in-flight fires on TWA constellations. The right engines on the L-1049 and 749 had a series of problems, causing Lockheed to assign 10 mechanics to work with Eastern technicians. Aside from the early problems, the Connie was a major success for Eastern and would serve the needs of Eastern's long-haul routes. But management still had not selected a replacement for the DC-3 for short routes. Charlie Frosch conducted extensive research and analysis to come up with three aircraft options for Eastern. Number one, a Super DC-3. 
number two, a Convair 240, and then a Martin 202. The Martin 202 was the best selection and Frost recommended to Rickenbacker for approval. It was given in the late 45, Frost assigned a letter of intent to purchase 25 aircraft with the stipulation that Eastern reserve the right to demand any necessary design changes. Since the Martin 202 was still on the drawing board, Glenn Martin accepted the Eastern stipulations. Frosch actually sent Martin his take on a major design flaw involving the 202's wing structure. As it turned out, the flaw remained undetected until August of 1948, when a Northwest Martin 202 crashed in a thunderstorm in Winona, Minnesota, killing all 37 aboard. The investigation found the flaw was due to metal fatigue on the left wing after 1,400 hours of operation. The Martin 202s were grounded, grounded after inspection of Northwest's other 17 Martins in their fleet where fatigue cracks were discovered in one or both wings. As other airlines cancel orders, Rickenbacker stayed with Martin after the manufacturer agreed to allow Eastern to redesign 50% of the aircraft. The design changes included new B-17-like wing joint structures, pressurized cabins, and two Pratt & Whitney R2800 CB16 radial piston engines. Eastern signed a contract for 35 more Martins, and TVA followed suit with 25 more. The aircraft was named the Martin 404. Eastern is the shuttle airline. It's second nature to me to take the Eastern shuttle. Wouldn't think about using anybody else. I know there's lots of competition, but they're the people I just go to. And I'm happy with it. And I don't think I'd, I'd go to uh, any of the other uh, airlines. I think the Eastern shuttle has always been very efficient. It's become even more so with the improvements. Improvements like snacks and beverages, roomier seating, and more comfortable terminals. The Eastern Air Shuttle Plus. You've gone from a, a cab ride to closer to a limousine ride. We continue with the second part of our story, Tet, by Captain Jim Blackburn. Clark was a grand old field, leased to the U.S. government since 1903. It was the largest U.S. overseas base, covering some 240 square miles, with huge old oak trees, parade grounds, and a very good officers club, where we enjoyed many happy hours. At Clark, the female flight attendants performed a wonderful service for our troops. They took the real milk from our airplane and delivered it to the base hospital and then went a giant step further. After securing permission, they visited, visited the amputee ward to hug and talk with the wounded warriors, some of them quadruple amputees. They cheered them up and after leaving the hospital cried like babies for the men who might never be coming home. The next day, February 7th, Captain Smith, 2nd Officer Mel Coughlin, myself, and some of the flight attendants took an Air Force Bluebird school bus on a trip to Baguio, the Philippine summer capital in northern Luzon. The road went along the route of the Bataan Death March, then up into a high mountain area. Lacking a guardrail on the cliffside, our wheels were inches from the edge when we passed another vehicle on the narrow road. Looking down about 500 feet, we couldn't even see any road beneath us out of the side windows. In spite of this hazarded route, we arrived safely, which was bathed in high mountain clouds. An Air Force messenger met the bus and had a flash telex for us. We were told to return immediately with the bus to Clark and not stay as long as we had planned. We still had another day layover scheduled at Clark. 
Upon our return, we discovered that the North Koreans had captured our spy ship, the USS Pueblo, and President Johnson was calling upon more troops to go to Korea. Our published sched was now void, and we awaited the new flight info plan. We found out years later that the Soviets had commissioned the Norks to capture the Pueblo to commandeer one of our code machines, unknown to us that they already had the current codes given to them by a U.S. Navy turncoat, but needed the actual machine to read our messages. This they did for some 12 years before we discovered that they also had both the up-to-date codes as well as the code machine. On the morning of February the 8th, we left, deadheading north, on an unmarked Southern Air Transport Boeing 727 with Oriental flight attendants. We were bound for Kadena Air Base on Okinawa. On arrival that night, we went to Air America Operations and arranged transport to nearby Japanese-style hotel. The temperature was about 35 degrees F, and we felt it because we had all left our overcoats in Honolulu Operations, planning to pick them up on the way back. Our rooms were quite cold, so we piled a lot of our dirty clothes on top of the bed covers in order to keep warm. The next morning, an Air Force bus picked us up and took us to the Koza Palace, an airline crew hotel in Koza. K.O., the manager, was helpful and had us sign in on the crew board in the lobby. On it would be placed our next expected departure date and time, if known. We went down to number 2 Gate Street, which was just out to the main gate of the airbase. The local economy was modest, to say the least, and we had been briefed not to pay more than a dime for a taxi ride across the city with no tip. Prices of goods were much lower than in mainland Japan. For example, I brought a beautiful pair of Pentex 7 by 50 binoculars with case for $28. Seiko watches were very cheap, too. An embroidery shop copied our eastern DC-861 on, on the back of blue jackets with a Snoopy dog set in on top looking behind in terror as three Sams were coming at him. They did a beautiful job, even put in every cabin door and window and the EAL logo and colors on the airplane. The reason we were sent to Okinawa was to pick up an Eastern DC-8 that was to be rerouted with 224 troops to Kempo Air Base near Seoul, South Korea, and then ferried emptied to us. That night the manager said he would call us if we were instructed to fly early the following morning. We quickly realized that EAL was trying to run the operation from our JFK base on the other side of the world and was not keeping up. Each night we went to bed expecting an alarm call at about 4 a.m. We wised up, though, and on subsequent nights agreed to set our alarm clocks for normal breakfast time wake-up. If no flight materialized, we would not shave, but have breakfast at the hotel and then go to one of the Japanese female barbershops on Number 2 Gate Street where we would get the works. This included a shave, shampoo, haircut or trim, and back massage for 50 cents. Other crews recommended the Paris steam baths for a good relaxing soak and massage. We arranged to tour the battlegrounds in Okinawa and saw the suicide cliffs where locals were told by the Japanese to jump to their deaths rather than be taken captive and tortured by br the brutal Americans. Unfortunately, many didn't make the leap. Another day found us making reservations for an Okinawan tea house, which had its own style of sake wine. This was served cold and had the kick of white lightning. The milder Japanese sake was served hot. Of the several courses of Okinawan specialties, the only one I really cared for was a seaweed soup. One of our favorite dinner spots was the Mongolian barbecue, 
where your chosen meats were passed through an opening in the kitchen wall and steamed on the spot. Finally, on February 11th, we received word to go to Kadena Air Base to pick up the DC-8 and ferry it to Cameron Bay, Vietnam, where another full load of troops were awaiting their freedom bird. The air base was then under a yellow alert, so we spent minimum ground time and were off in a flash for a two-hour trip to Clark. There we were housed in the Oasis Motel outside the base with a pleasant restaurant and a casino. On the way to the motel, we went by van through several checkpoints manned by shotgun-toting guards. At dinner, one of our female flight attendants told us about her experience when she got to her room. She had used the toilet and was unpacking her bag when she heard a scratching on the door. Opening the door a crack, she was startled by a huge rat that ran past her leg, into the bathroom, and down the toilet. She said that she had been sitting on that toilet a few minutes before and would never do so again. In the future, she would stand on the seat. Ah, the glamour and romance of foreign flying. The desk clerk later told her that rats lived in the sewer pipes underneath the motel. We soon adjusted to the routine of life at Clark. There were new movies daily and opportunities to go to the officers' club picnics and outings. The base exchange was a popular shopping spot and was stocked with many bargains from around the world. Live entertainment at the old club was excellent and the pizza pit was on the lower level. Mm -hmm. On February 14th, we bade the Philippines a fond farewell and the good tailwinds were able to fly our eastern Freedom Bird nonstop to Hickam Air Force Base, Honolulu International Airport, in eight and a half hours. Our layover time was at Waikiki Beach was always a delight in the Ilakai Hotel First Class. It was situated south of Hawaiian Village Hotel, where Hawaii Five-O was later filmed. In between with this was the Waikikian, a tropical gym with its Tahitian lanai and papid bar. At night, local singers and entertainers would frequent the piano bar and provide many hours of free, excellent island-style entertainment. Very few tourists found this beachside garden spot. On February 15th, we flew another Eastern Freedom Bird from Hickam Air Force Base to Travis Air Force Base, where we started a little more than two weeks before. Then a van ride to San Francisco, where we spent the night. The next day, we deadheaded on National Airlines from San Francisco to our home base in good old Miami. This ended our 18-day Vietnam adventure during the Tet Offensive. And as a side note, Jim writes, after February 1968, Eastern suspended flying MAC contract flights for four months while when we resumed trips to Europe. The USAF told us that we had the best on-time record in the whole MAC operation for delivering troops and dependents. We had also proven that we could fly efficiently across both the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans and deserved to be awarded the Pacific routes that we were requested at the time. Of all the ways that we can fly, of all the highways through the sky, of all the wings that greet the sun, Passengers have flown Eastern than any other airline in the free world. If you've helped make us America's favorite way to fly, we thank you. If you haven't flown Eastern recently, give us a try. We'll show you we really do earn our wings every day. The pride of Eastern shining, we earn our wings. Our wings. 
we like to use the words Eastern family because of the many friendships formed over a career with Eastern. A great honor to someone is for another to pay respect by putting words on paper and having it printed for many to see and read. One such friend wrote the story you are about to hear in two parts about a colleague working for the same company. The story was written by Captain Jim Holder about his good friend, Captain Sam Gore. It appeared in the Retired Eastern Pilots Association's magazine, Repartee. He titled the story, A Man of Many Talents. Retired Eastern Captain Samuel T. Gore, also known as Sam T. Gore, for those who flew with him, at age 75 can look back on a life of adventure that many would envy. This Mississippi native and graduate of Ole Miss achieved fame and fortune. Well, he would, uh, he would say not too much fortune as a United States Air Force fighter pilot, an airline captain, psychologist, expert downhill skier, a gourmet cook, crop duster, Mississippi farmer, bush pilot, Alaska fisherman and tour guide, furniture slash home designer slash builder, and, of all things, a New Orleans jazz piano player. Recently, Carrie and I were invited to Houston, Mississippi, by Sam. As he and his band, Over the Hill Jazz Band, were to put on their third annual New Orleans jazz party at their local country club. As an additional inducement to go, I would be able to see my old colleague, roommate, Willie Frank House, also a resident of Houston, who I had not seen in almost 50 years. But having flown with Sam many times and wanting to renew our friendship, we immediately accepted this invitation as knew it would be a fun event, and it surely was. Sam is the oldest of three boys. His brother Ed and Jim also did well as one is a medical doctor and the other is a retired attorney and judge. All three went to Ole Miss, which is located about 60 miles north of Houston. There, Sam got his degree in psychology and was in the United States Air Force ROTC program. Upon graduation, he was commissioned a second lieutenant and entered pilot training in Class 56-U. Upon receiving his silver wings, he was selected to fly the supersonic F-100 Super Sabrejet fighter. After, 100, uh, after F-100 checkout, he was based in Germany, and while there did his nuclear delivery training at Wheelis Air Force Base in Libya, as the F-100 also had nuclear mission capability. Sam recalls that there were two delivery methods, one of which was a type of pitch-up after a high-speed run-in to the target at treetop altitude. So in 1958, Sam was there at Wheelis renewing his qualifications in this method, flying literally just a few feet above the desert at 525 knots and approaching his high G pull-up uh, pull point when his engine suddenly exploded. He was able to pull the fighter into a small nose-up attitude 
before losing control, total control of the airplane. So with the cockpit full of smoke and the desert racing by at over 500 knots just below, Sam had to eject within a few seconds of the explosion. He did not even have time to put his feet in the stirrups or to any other preparation, but at least he had his vision visor down. Sam says he has no memory of the ejection after pulling the trigger other than one swing in the chute before hitting the ground and being drugged along by what was left of the parachute. As it had lost several panels in this very high-speed ejection. As he came to a stop, he realized that his helmet was gone. But it did its job because when the rescue team found his helmet, they reported back that it was split in half across the top. Other than some cuts, bruises, and broken tailbone, Sam had survived an extremely high-speed ejection at practically ground level. Later in Sam's United States Air Force career, he served in the F-100 squadron of the 4485th Test Wing at Eglin Air Force Base in Florida. As he gained much test pilot experience in that job, he was then chosen to check out in the new F-5A Freedom Fighter, a highly modified T-38 Talon trainer. After qualifying, Sam then, in April of 1965, led a flight of five brand-new F-5As from the factory back to Eglin Air Force Base for evaluation in Project Sparrowhawk. Later, still as part of this evaluation uh, project, Sam then went to Vietnam in 1966 as part of the initial cadre for this aircraft and flew in 169 combat missions as a member of the 4503rd TFS. At the conclusion of his United States Air Force career, Sam had received many awards, including the Distinguished Flying Cross and nine medals. In 1967, Sam left the Air Force and joined us at Eastern Airlines. At Eastern, he flew as second officer on the DC-8 and the Boeing 727, first officer on the Convair 440 and the Boeing 727, then captain on the DC-9. Being unable to sever his Mississippi roots, he commuted from Houston, mainly in his twin-engine Comanche. Those of us who flew with Sam recall the stories he told about flying that plane over to cover his trips in all sorts of weather. What was most memorable was the fact that towards the end, both engines were about 500 hours beyond the total recommended before between overhaul. Sam used to say it took full power to maintain the glide slope with gear and flaps down. But she got him to work and back home again every time. While based in Atlanta, Sam met Marion Heath, who was not airline-related at all. 
After a fairly short courtship, they married and with her two sons and one daughter, Bruce, Karen, and Larry. They bought 230 acres just northeast of Houston, Mississippi, and in 1973 spent a year designing then building their country home, which has many very old items of furniture and other artifacts from the Gore family. It also contains over 5,000 bricks from the old school that Sam and his brothers had attended. Each one had to be cleansed of the old mortar before becoming part of a gigantic two-story fireplace in the great room of their new home. Working the land, Sam became a very successful planter, as good farmers are called in Mississippi. There, they raised almost all of their food, including aged beef, pork, country-cured ham, homegrown fruit and vegetables, molasses, and cornmeal from their own mills, along with churned butter, just to name a few items. Of course, Sam and the boys brought in rabbits, squirrels, venison, quail, and doves. They ate pretty well. Sam adopted Marion's children, and in 1978, they together welcomed another son, Tom. Being as Sam was clearly a pilot's pilot, Larry and Tom chose to follow in his footsteps and became pilots themselves. Larry is now a captain on the Boeing 767 at UPS, and Tom became an Alaskan bush pilot, too. Sam was a gourmet country cook whose ability to prepare, prepare, uh, among many other dishes, a certain cornbread which had won him much recognition. As a matter of fact, he was invited to cook at a test kitchen sponsored by the Better Homes and Gardens at their headquarters in Des Moines, Iowa. He took his iron skillet along with other pots and pans out to Iowa to show them how to do prepare wild duck, one of his specialties. Also, as a side dish, he prepared some of his famous cornbread, but surprisingly, it failed to come up uh, out the skillet completely. Although properly embarrassed in front of his sponsors, Sam was able to save the day by stating that the iron skillet just did not travel well. It simply preferred Mississippi. (laughs) Still, though, he and Marion, also a fine cook in her own right, were featured in Better Homes and Garden at least twice, November 1973 and October 1979. They were shown preparing many dishes in addition to his two famous cornbreads, uh, Sam's and Yankee, they're called. These included buttermilk biscuits, sawmill gravy, red-eyed gravy, wild duck, and quail, along with a dessert of fried pies. He had learned to make fried pies from his paternal grandmother, Gore. Sam took early retirement after the strike and became a crop duster. However, his friend, Eastern pilot Charles Dixon, had some experience flying up in Alaska and contacted Sam about coming up for the summer season. As Sam had sold the Comanche, he was able to find a Cessna 180 that could be converted into a bush plane. 
Now that he owned a short field airplane, he, he turned some of his farmland into a grass strip and started making plans to head out to Alaska. When the crops were laid, by they, they packed the plane, no rear seat, to the brim. But Marion on a crate behind the seats, 11-year-old Tom in the co-pilot seat, and they set off for Alaska. Talk about an adventure. Wow. The first season they lived in a tent way out in the boonies, and Sam just hauled fish in the 180. The next year, though, he bought out an existing company which had a cabin on the property, so they were able to live a little better. Now he had Gore Fish Company, catching, processing, and shipping some 50,000 pounds of wild Alaska sockeye red salmon yearly. He also used the Cessna in a hunting and fishing guide business. Tom, their son, who was now grown, also learned to fly and work with Sam in the businesses. Sam and Marion kept their farm and home back in Mississippi, however, and returned to Alaska each summer, flying the faithful Cessna up and back each year. In 2002, they decided to retire and sold the business to Tom. So they left the Alaska operation in their son's capable hands and flew the old tired 180 home one last time. It now rests in a homemade hangar out behind the house at the end of the runway. Sam says he still flies her every few days. Now for the jazz piano player bit. Sam took piano lessons as a young grammar school at a young as a young grammar school fellow, but gave up on them as recitals and such had no appeal to him. However, all through school he continued to play and by the time he finished high school, Sam had pretty much taught himself to play quite well. Still, though, he never played with a group. Much later, as an Air Force test pilot at Eglin Air Force Base, Sam happened to be in special services where military personnel could check out various items. There he saw a bass fiddle, so signed it out and started teaching himself to play that instrument. He bought some instructional books and before long got pretty good at it and soon found himself playing bass in a band. From there, he went back to the piano and the rest is history. To this day, Sam continues his musical career as a jazz pianist. Most gigs are in the southeast, but there have been some in Colorado where their compensation was partly free skiing. The over-the-hill jazz band troupe varies, but Sam, as its leader, is there for all performances. So now, in full retirement, Sam continues to fly the 180, play his baby grand when not performing with his band, hits the golf course at the Houston Country Club, and, of course, he's still cooking. This fellow has done it all by his friend, Jim Holder. And Eastern Airlines presents 
a flight of imagination to Walt Disney World Epcot Center. On an Eastern Super 7 vacation, a week here without airfare is as little as $156, including hotel, car, and more. How can we do this? Why, as the official airline of Walt Disney World, we can work a little magic of our own. This is a short follow-up of the story we just heard about uh, Sam, Captain Sam Gore. And it goes, Sam's band played at many events in Mississippi and other southern states, including New Orleans. He even brought them to the Sunset Silver Falcons convention in Auburn, Alabama, a few years ago. Anyhow, it was a crowded event with wine served, many bottles, I should say. When they broke out the wine, panic reigned as there was no corkscrew at the club to open them. But Carrie saved the day with a little knife thingy she carries in her purse. She bought it in Germany on our visit there for the 50th anniversary of D-Day. It had a corkscrew as part of it. It opened many bottles that night. Anyhow, the next day we visited Sam at his country club, his country home, I should say, and saw the Cessna 180 that had made those many trips to Alaska. Sam had heard a very short runway, had cleared a very short runway that started at the house and and the little hangar. I think it was about 1,200 feet and maybe 70 feet wide in the middle of a pasture with cow pads scattered about here and there. It had a drop-off on one side with a fence and small pines down in the dip. Sam told me the story of a takeoff he had attempted to fly to a nearby airport where a fellow was going to do some work on it. His young son and a friend were down the runway a bit tossing a football. The battery was dead, so he had to prop it which was the usual way he started it. Seems he gave it a bit too much throttle, and it cranked and started down the runway. He was hanging on and being dragged, but could not reach the throttle, so he and the plane bounced over numerous cow pads and such, chasing the two boys. Somehow it made a slight left turn and headed for the dip and fence and trees, still dragging Sam. Right before the dip and fence, it hit a big bump, and that made it do a 180. Now it was headed back towards the house, still chasing the boys. Somehow Sam was able to bounce into the cockpit uh, a little and yank the throttle back, thus bringing the plane to a halt. Sam told me this story with his usual laconic style, which made it much more interesting, Jim Holder. Well, that's all we have for tonight. Harry and I hope you have enjoyed this little bit of Eastern history. Much has been written by the men and women of Eastern Airlines and by others in books, newspapers, magazines, and newsletters of the several Eastern organization publications. They're doing their part in keeping the legacy of a great airline alive and well, even after the more than 30 years since its last flight. 
Why not add your memories to our Monday night broadcast of Memories of a Great Airline as told by its people and friends? Just send us your story and we'll read it on a future broadcast. Better yet, record it and send to E. Neil Holland at yahoo.com. That's E. Neil, N E A L, Holland at yahoo.com. It must be in a wake file or correction wave file format or an MP3 format. Your recording, recording will be part of the show in your own voice. Now until next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, Harry Lindquist and Neil Holland hope you have a safe and beneficial week. So long, Eastern family.